William Shakespeare is credited by the Oxford English Dictionary for contributing how many words to the English language? Go ahead, you can shout it out. I quizzed my wife this morning, the English teacher, and she got it right when I put the parameters around it. Within 1,000, how many words does the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary, attribute to William Shakespeare contributing to the language you and I speak on a day-to-day -day basis? Anybody want to holler? Within 1,000. 263. 263,000 or just 263? 263. 263. Within 1,000? No. 798. What is, what is this like? The price is right? You just need to, you just need to yell out a thousand. Just give me a certain thousand. One thousand. One word. You clearly have not read much Shakespeare. I need to move on right now. The answer to the question is 3,000. 3,000. There's also a number of phrases that are in the English language that you and I don't even realize came into the English language through Shakespeare, believe it or not. To be, and everybody in the room can finish the question, finish the line, right? That came from Shakespeare. That's an easy one. You understand that. Methinks the lady doth protesteth too much. Maybe you're familiar with that or not. Or the expression, what's in a name? You've heard that before, right? That question, what's in a name? Bonus points to anybody tell me what Shakespearean play that comes from. His most famous, Romeo and Juliet, on the lips of Juliet. What's in a name? A rose by any other color. What's in a name is a great question. I don't know if Shakespeare had the third commandment uh, in his mind, but he may have, and it's a perfectly good question to offer to you this morning as an introduction to the third commandment. What's in a name? It's a legitimate question. What is in a name? You all have been named by someone and some folks who named you probably took a lot of time to think about what that name meant. And that's why they wanted to give it to you. We certainly did before we named Hannah. And it meant a lot to us to name her that. What's in a name? Uh, though the Ten Commandments are divided into two tablets, uh, I asked Brother Paul this morning to read the first tablet. As I've said to you each week uh, in this series, this is the fourth week now, third commandment, but the fourth week in the, in the series, they're divided into two tablets, two tables. Uh, our, our duties to God are the first four commandments. That's what I asked him to read this morning. He read for you the first four commandments up to and including which God next, God willing next week we'll look at uh, with regard to the Sabbath. And then the back half or six tenths, uh, if you please, five to 10 is our, our duties to his image bearers. All of that to say is that the 10 commandments are about God and about his character, about his person and about the relationships that he has built into the world so that we would come to understand him more fully. We've seen this especially uh, and most clearly in the in what is required by this commandment will be addressed 
as our closing application. But first, we've got to consider three important words in this verse. Okay? This, this is almost the whole sermon itself. The examination of the three, what I will argue, be the most important words in that first half of this verse. We've got to get these things down. That's why we slow down here and we'll look at a couple. We'll look at three words, okay? A couple minutes on each word, so that we set it up, and then by that time, we then ask, okay, now what does this commandment forbid? What does it require? You'll answer those questions. But it gets slippery if you don't get these words down. It gets it gets real funky. Okay, so I want to I want to dial it down here a little bit and have a look at these. The first word that we want to look at is the word take. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Most of the other English translations, I've got at least three listed right here, not the one we're using, the ESV, but three other English translations, in my opinion, get it right, but they take away the oomph in this, in that they use the word misuse. Do not misuse the name of the Lord. And in doing that, what they do is they take the word take and they take the word vain and they put them together and say, don't misuse it. So you, you miss, you miss the, the dual action of the taking, but then also the taking in vain. I mean, most people, uh, I don't know, some people today, still familiar roughly with the Ten Commandments, will know that somewhere in those Ten Commandments, the word in vain appears. If you simply take that out and say, do not misuse the name of the Lord, it, to me, it sounds like, I don't know, does it to you? It sounds like you, a little bit of it is softened. Don't misuse the name of the Lord as opposed to not taking it in vain. So the word, the word take it literally means to hold up, to display, or to carry. So just plug those words in. Do not hold up the name of the Lord in vain. Do not display the name of the Lord in vain. Do not carry the name of the Lord in vain. As those who are created in the image of God, you carry his name. Do you do it in vain? Or do you do it in a way that's honoring to the Lord? Take, do not take the name of the Lord in vain. So let, following straight through there, the second word is name. Don't take the name. And here's, I mean, this is a whole sermon series right here. The name of the Lord your God. The name, as you heard me in the introductory, in the introduction to this, the name signifies the person's character, the person's nature, the person's essence. In a real way, the name is the person. When you declare the name of the Lord, you're declaring the person of God. His nature, his essence, his character, his heart, his being is all tied up in that name. Just consider it, particularly in the Old Testament, consider Jacob. Consider some of the names, right? Jacob, the heel grabber in the womb, grabbing the heel of his brother on the way out. And he's named heel grabber. Keep that in mind now. If you've got people, you know, Jacob grabbing heels. That's a negative example. And a more positive example comes right to mind is Joshua. Much different character, particularly in the Old Testament. Joshua means Yahweh is salvation. And we know that Joshua is the form from which Jesus, the name Jesus, comes. And so we expect Jesus' name to associate with Yahweh and salvation in some way. And it's exactly what happens. In Matthew 121, you know, through the genealogy and 
the, the angel says to Mary, you shall name him Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Yeshua, Joshua, will come, and just the sheer meaning of his name indicates that he's coming in the name of God, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, and he's going to bring salvation, the salvation that this God has built into his narrative that is the world in which you and I are living right now. Turn with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter 3. One of the, one of, without argument, one of the, one of the top 10 chapters in the Bible. It ought to be a chapter that you make uh, yourself familiar with. You're going to turn the page, Exodus 3, and you're going to see this little heading that says, the burning bush. Ah, yeah, Exodus 3. I, I know about the burning bush. I know it's a famous story. Couldn't remember that it was Exodus 3. Let's nail that down. Exodus 3 the burning bush episode, and you, you're familiar with it. So I want to turn your attention to verse 13. Exodus 3, beginning in 13, Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? You see, you, you can read between the lines there and, and, and understand right away that when we hear the name, it's going to tell us an awful lot about who it is that sent you. What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Verse 15, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. In one sense, I am is not a name. It's not a name that God gives to himself. It's, it's, his, it's his identity. It's absolute reality. No beginning, no end. It's like the little question I get every single year in Good Question Chapel. Who created God? And kids are just not satisfied when I tell them nobody did. Because we finite creatures have a beginning and have an end, if you please. And for us to get our heads wrapped around infinity, get wrapped around that which has no beginning and has no end, it is and literally leaves us breathless and in profound mystery. And so it should be. I want to worship a God who is not a created being like me, quite frankly. I don't want a better version of me being my God. I want a God who is so powerful, so wonderful, so holy, so glory, so beyond description that there is an element of mystery to his being. Do you want to worship a God that is completely exhaustible? I would be really uneasy putting my head on the pillow at night if I thought this God, whom I love and worship and serve, I know completely. I don't even know my wife completely. Talk about mysteries. uncreated existence, no beginning, no end. This is our God. This is his name. He moves from I am to the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. Hold on to that just a second. Flip with me a little bit deeper into Exodus. Go to Exodus 33. Incredible bookends to this book. 
It opens up with this burning bush, this, this bush that is burning and is not going out. It's a real live illustration before Moses, who was told to take off his shoes because he's standing on holy ground and he's watching. And he tells us that he's watching this bush, but it's not being consumed. That's the point. This is God stooping to us and giving us an example that we can at least get our minds wrapped around. Here's a burning bush, but it's not being consumed. What in the world is that all about? Defining all the laws of, uh, uh, defying all the laws of thermodynamics. That's God. Built the laws of the universe into the world, but he is not defined by them. 3319. Uh, Exodus 33, 19. Let me begin in 17. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. That's God to Moses now. You see the name thing going on there. 18 of Exodus 33. And Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for a man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. I'll cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand. You shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen." Here's God now telling us, adding another element to his name, namely that Yahweh is also a name that immediately signifies, stands for glory and holiness. Now, the, the, the ground beneath your feet ought to start rumbling here a little bit. So when, we, when I'm standing here and you're sitting or standing there and you're singing songs about the glory of God and wanting to see Jesus high and lifted up, you ought not to trivialize, trivialize this. You ought not to treat it lightly. It ought to take you up so that you don't take the Lord's name in vain. You want to hold it up. You want to see it in the right way. You want to make sure it's glorified and honored because when you name his name, you are not only speaking about his ineffability, his, his existence that has always been no beginning and no end, but you're also talking about this unique being that is exclusively holy and glorious. This is our God whose name we should not be taking in vain. Also under the name, don't lose that, don't lose sight of the fact that he is the Lord, your God. It's the astounding thing about all that I've just done to try to hold up God as high as I possibly can with my own limitations, he's your God. Can you imagine the first people receiving this? He is the Lord Yahweh, a covenant-keeping God, the Lord Yahweh, covenant-keeping God, covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. He's your God. This is the Lord, your God. Yes, he's high and lifted up, but he's also oh so close. And we've got to hold that tension. We've got to live in that tension because one of the things we do right now is we, we domesticate God. We break the third commandment by thinking of him as our buddy. By thinking of him as the, the genie whose you know, who's, who's, who's bottle we rub when we need a favor. That's the danger of God's nearness, is that we can domesticate him. And we lose sight of his glory. And we lose sight of his holiness. 
I want to be able to report to you the trouble that we're having in the churches because people are talking about the glory of God too much. He's now too far away from us. But that day I don't see coming anytime soon. No, instead I stand here and warn you about him being so close to you that he's like your pal. We've got to live in the tension that, yeah, he is close, closer than any human being will ever be to you, but he's also the one of a kind I am. Third word is vain. You knew that that was coming, right? Don't, don't take, don't hold up, don't display, don't carry the name. Vain, in vain. I want to give you three things under vain that I think will, will catch it for you. Three spheres of how, how the name can be taken in vain. First is coarsely, coarsely. Pardon my language. This does not need a whole lot of explanation. It's very clear when you use the, name, the Lord's name coarsely that you're violating the third commandment. God damn it. Or using Jesus Christ as an expletive. When somebody cuts you off, when you hit your thumb, when something goes on that you don't like, and it's Jesus Christ. And even worse, when there's a descriptor put in between Jesus and Christ. This is taking the name of the Lord in vain, coarsely. It's probably the most evident to us. I, secondly, I want to suggest that we can take the, the Lord's name in vain disrespectfully. Now, certainly, if you take it coarsely, you're taking it disrespectfully. But I've got this category developed here disrespectfully because it's not necessarily coarse but it's certainly disrespectful or lightly, if, that's, if that works better for you. And this is the proverbial and ubiquitous OMG. Or if it's not the letters, it's the actual words. Oh my God. That's what I'm suggesting is the taking of the, name, the Lord's name in vain because you're doing so disrespectfully, lightly. You're not treating the name as holy and glorious. OMG, OMG. I, I mean, how, how many emojis are available to you nowadays? Type in OMG when you're writing a text to somebody and watch what happens. Well, how many people around you, maybe even you, and I, you know, I understand I might be tapping on toes here, goes with the nature of preaching. You know, oh my God, should not be something that just comes flying out of our mouths, unless you really mean it unless you really mean it. We've been on vacation in the past and I've stood in some incredibly beautiful places where I have literally gone, oh my God. That's appropriate. That's worship. But oh my God, did you see that? Is not. Let's differentiate between what is awesome and worthy of worship and the use of his name versus something that's pedestrian. And we're disrespectful and holding the diamond-like name as though it was cheap gravel. Third, we violate the third commandment when we take the Lord's name coarsely, disrespectfully. Third, falsely. This 
is straightforward as well. This is swearing an oath in God's name that you never intend to carry out. I swear to God, goes the expression. I swear on my mother's grave. I swear on a stack of Bibles is breaking the third commandment because you're swearing, if you please, falsely. I swear, says the husband who's messed up for the 18th time, I'll never do it again. Is <laughs> a violation of the third commandment. In Matthew chapter 5, you don't need to turn there right now. I, I will read it for you, though. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus gives us how not to, and then in chapter 6 gives us the how to. In Matthew 5, beginning in verse 33, well-known passage, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' words on oath. Again, you've heard that it said to those of long ago, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you, have, what you have sworn. So the rabbis, getting around this, dancing a little bit, dancing a little bit, you can invoke the name of God this way, but not that way. And Jesus is say, saying, I'll have none of it. This is not about pedantics. But I say to you, see what he did? You've heard it said, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God. In other words, to avoid, one of the ways the rabbi said you could take an oath is you don't say, I swear to God, but instead you replace God with something that represents God. I swear by heaven, which is why it opens up a very interesting set of, set of discussions here, which I won't get into, but just to put out there for you, how about the word, you know, using things like, oh, geez, or gosh, or shucks, or golly. Very fascinating. And again, it's contextually based. I, my wife and I were talking about this a little bit yesterday. Uh, if I've got a seven-year-old running around in the school that, that just said, gosh, I just dropped my water. I don't think that child is actively thinking about that gosh being a replacement for God and seeking to curse, this, curse his name. But it's worked its way into our language such that we use these euphemisms as a way for intuitively, not, people not even regenerate now, but intuitively realizing that to say, oh God, or something like that, it just doesn't quite right sit with them less and less the case now in our culture, but that's how gosh and gee whiz and those kinds of things have made their way into our language. Look up these words in a good dictionary, or you'll have to use your phone, I guess. I don't know if anybody even knows what a dictionary is anymore. And just and look at the etymology of some of those words, and invariably, you'll get down far enough and you'll realize a replacement for God, or for a deity, or something like that. And just a really quick sidebar here for those of you who are into apologetics and other world religions and so on and so forth. Does it ever strike you as a little odd that it's our God that is a cuss word and no other God? I mean, have you ever heard anybody flip off, flip off Confucius? You know, oh, Confucius. Why is that? I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, I am intrigued by those kinds of things. I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair. No, 
here, here really is what it boils down to. You know, the keeping one simple way to keep the third commandment is let your yes be yes and your no, no. Sometimes it's just that simple. Anything more than this comes from evil. But then Jesus puts the big cherry on top of the Sunday when we look across the page and we read 6, 9 of Matthew, chapter 6, 9. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, finish it with me. Hallowed be your name. You want to know how to use the name of the Lord? Listen to what Jesus says to you. Hallow it. You come all the way back to the third commandment. Hold it up. Put the spotlight on it. Show people that it means an awful lot to you. You don't have to go chasing around everybody who says OMG. But you can separate yourself from the OMG crowd by talking in a more, if you please, exalted way when that name comes to your lips. There are names, aren't there, that you don't flip around. If the Queen of England walked into the room right now, I wouldn't say, yo, what's up, Liz? <laughs> no, you respect, right? Your Royal Highness. I mean, and it's even more simple than that. You know, I, I usually, we've got a running joke in my household, but I usually, I don't call my mother by her first name. It's true of you, right? How many of you grew up calling your mother by their first name, your father by their first name? You did that. You, I, I was informed of my error. That's a very plain and simple example of how to honor a name. I don't call my mother Elizabeth when I'm five. I call her mom. My grandparents, Graham, Gramp. That's an honor of respect. That's, that's, that's a way of respecting and honoring them rather than saying, yo, what's up, Evelyn? Hey, Paul, let's go out for breakfast. Never, never even conceive of doing that with my grandparents. Why would you do it with God? To take the, the Lord's name in vain is to treat it coarsely, is to treat it disrespectfully, is to treat it falsely. Okay, so... The application in closing here, we ask the two questions. So what does it forbid? And what does it require? And I'm, I, I would be really, I really love for you to, in your note taking, just to leave yourself a little space and to try to answer that question. Okay, in light of what Pastor Mark has just taught us, what then do I see this commandment for forbidding? Forbidding. The third word plainly forbids any use of the name or character of God in a way that dishonors him as the one and only God. There's a single sentence for you to hang your hat on. It forbids any use of the name or character of God in a way that dishonors him as the one and only God. Or to say it another way, that diminishes or belittles his glory. Or to say it yet another way, that treats him cavalierly. And so you can see the organic nature of the Ten Commandments, because this third word goes right together, hand in glove with the first two words. You, you, you take the name of the Lord in vain, you violated at least the first three commandments. Because you've replaced God with some form of idol, and you are no longer properly worshiping him. When you treat his gold-like name as though it was some rusted bronze you and I have been created to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
Matthew 22, 37, and to glorify him and enjoy him forever. The answer to the first question of the Westminster Confession of Faith. So this means, and I hope you've already seen it in this room today, and see it just a little bit more before we end up here. This means that our preaching, listen now, come on, listen, that our preaching, our praying, our singing, our talking will have as its primary focus the honoring of God. And I've included it all. Not just my preaching, and then John gets up and sings some sing-songy kinds of things that's got nothing to do with the glory of God. It's one of the reasons why I love the brother. He's hungry for the glory of God, and he wants to sing. You, you, don't, you know that John's not faking it. He's caught up. He's got words for us that nourish us, that lift God up. He does not take it in vain. High and lifted up. Preaching, our praying, even our talking. I was zipping right along thinking all spiritual things, right? Preaching, praying, singing. Okay, got it. And then boom, 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 boom. Put talking in there too. And I thought, yeah, that's good. That's good. Because we can preach and pray and sing to the glory of God. And then we can just, you know, go out and just talk about nothing. Talk about nothing. Certainly nothing that would, not necessarily taking the, names, the name of the Lord in vain, but certainly not holding it up high and lifted. We strive to that. We strive for that. We desire for our lips to be sanctified so that we do not violate the third commandment. You and I must not take God lightly, blasphemously. Our words particularly pertaining to God, must be marked by serious joy. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite quotes of all time, hangs everywhere I sit, says this. He says, there is a kind of joy that makes you serious. And that comes as close to being what I would put on my gravestone, apart from a Bible verse, than anything else I've ever read in my life. It's that big a deal to me because I think it so captures my personality. My, the, the thing of which I've been, I've been accused for decades is that I'm too serious. And when I have the opportunity to try to explain that I'm serious because I'm dealing with real serious things. But I'm also filled with the joy of this glorious God. And that makes me serious. You and I, in one sense, stand on the precipice of life and death. I am not going to trivialize this God. You need a big God. You need a God who's so glorious that you fall down in worship of him. Pray with me if you would. Psalm 19, 14, may the words of my mouth, meditation of my heart, be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock, my redeemer. What does it require as we finish up? What does it require if it forbids any use of the name of God in a way that dishonors or diminishes him as the one and only God? The third word, and here I'm quoting the Westminster Confession of Faith again because I just love it. Some big words, but I love it. Give me a second. 
The third word requires the holy and reverent use of God's names, titles, attributes, ordinances, words, and works. I love that. It's a lot. I'll say it for you again. But what the, what the divines at Westminster did for us is that they threw the door open really wide. So that if you think all you have to do is avoid saying God in the wrong way, they want you to see a bigger God. Anything that touches God, don't take in vain. His ordinances, when we celebrate com communion, his word, his attributes, don't mess with it. It requires the holy and reverent use of God's names, titles, attributes, ordinances, words, and works. In other words, as those who bear God's name. That one took me right out of my seat yesterday, John. As those who bear God's name. How ought we to represent that name? One of the things I've prayed over our youth is that they honor their name. When they go off on a retreat, when they go off on a field trip, they are not only representing NDCA, they are not only representing Jesus Christ, but they're also representing the family that is their last name. In other words, as those who bear God's name, the third word, the third word requires that our yes be yes, Matthew 5:37. The third word requires that we speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4:15. Do you know that gossip is a violation of the third commandment? The third word requires that our yes be yes, that we speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15, and that we keep our word. Thirdly, we keep our word, for the Lord hates lying lips. That's Proverbs 12.22. The way you keep the third commandment is by letting your yes be yes, is by speaking the truth in love, and it's by keeping your word. For the Lord hates lying lips. And so, as I button this up, I want to leave you Psalm 29, verses 1 and 2, because I started crying out to the Lord yesterday, and I said to him, Lord, okay, if this is the paradigm, if this is the guidance, I said, give me some words that I can praise back to you, if you please. I'll just give you a small example, Psalm 29, 1 and 2. Ascribe to the Lord... O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord and the splendor of his holiness. So there, there are two verses, Psalm 29, two glorious verses that actually help you keep this commandment. Descri ascribe to the Lord, describe him back to him. Tell him of his wonder and of his glory. Hold up his holy name. Hold up his holy name.
The verse closes by saying that the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The seriousness with which God takes the breaking of the third word ought to awaken us to our dire situation to seek his help. Here's the gospel right here. I'm going to leave you with these closing verses. In Psalm 79, the psalmist the psalmist gives us this, these words of confession for those times when we know we have broken the third commandment. Psalm 79 and verse 8, do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, 79.9, help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. There's your confession. That's your confession. Your sins being atoned is tied to the glory of God and the fame of his name. If you and I carry on in sin, we besmirch, we drag the name of God into the ground. The psalmist has given us words of confession. The apostle gives us words of justification. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him give us graciously all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? God is the one who died more than that. We who are raised, who is at the right hand of God, indeed is interceding for us. The psalmist gives us words of confession. The apostle gives us words of justification. What do you do when you violate the third commandment? What do you do when you stand before this holy God guilty? You confess your sin and you run to Christ. You confess your sin in the words that the psalmist has given us, and then you run to the truth of the gospel that Paul has laid out so gloriously in the book of Romans. He, Jesus Christ, is the only one that can rescue from the violation of any one of these commandments because he is the one and the only one that has perfectly kept them. Listen to the fruit that is born from that kind of cycle. Romans chapter 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Did you get it? You confess your sin. You cling to the gospel of justification in Jesus Christ, and this is what you get. In Jesus Christ, who is the name of God incarnate, you get peace. You get access. You get joy. You get hope. That's the process. That's the process. It's no wonder why John Calvin rightly declared that the name of God is more excellent than anything in the whole world.
Therefore, as you close in prayer with me, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name. The name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To you, Father, we direct our prayers and we confess how glib we can be with your name. How guilty we are of the violation of these precious commandments. And how it is that you have graciously warned us that even in violating these commands, we stand before you guilty. As we've said from the beginning of this series, this is one of the objectives of the law to show us our guilt. But it doesn't leave us there because another one of the objectives of the law is to drive us to Christ. And this is exactly what we've done, Father. We've come to Christ. I thank you that you've given us these words of confession from the psalmist. And even more importantly, you've given us these words of justification from the apostle. We stand now before you cleansed because of him. And in him, we have peace and access and joy and hope. And with the saints of old, we agree. The name of God is more excellent than anything else in the whole world. May every nation come and bend the knee before the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen and amen.